Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by author Sarah Teller. Sarah is a busy mother. In the past, she has been a first grade teacher as well as a kindergarten teacher. Although she is divorced, Sarah remains a hopeless romantic. Family first always is her mantra. Sarah is also accredited freelance writer, editor, contributor, and essayist, as well as a novelist and poet with over 17 years of experience. She was one of six invited speakers at a 2013 Careers in Publishing and Authorship event at Michigan State University, where she received an undergraduate degree. She has an MBA degree with a concentration in marketing and is currently pursuing an MA in clinical mental health counseling, concentrating in substance abuse and addictions. Her books include Another Bridge to Cross, Cookies, and Once Upon a Starry Night. Her latest book, Narcissistic Abuse, A Survival Guide was published by Mad Hatter Publishing and released in December of 2017. Abuse can take many forms with or without a narcissist. A narcissist is described as a person that uses other people as supply to feed their ego. They have no ability to love and many times they are covert. And even the well-educated can be tricked and abused by them never knowing they are with a narcissist until the end or grand finale. In her book, Teller talks about the insidious secret war going on inside some homes. If your spouse or partner is always right and you're always wrong, if you're always the one to blame for a mishap, and if you're never good enough, then you may be at war and not even realize it. Narcissistic abuse is real and potentially life-threatening. Physical, mental, and emotional abuse are all part of a narcissist's bag of abusive tricks and can have a lifelong impact on you and everyone in your household. If you or someone you know is caught in this situation, this survival guide can help you break free and survive. For therapists, counselors, or others involved in the recovery process, this book brings insight into the inner workings of the abusive narcissistic relationship. Sarah brings to bear her life experience combined with her intellectual and academic studies and presents a thorough reference book addressing the real need to identify narcissistic abuse, create a survival strategy, and find therapeutic relief from the after effect. In this book, she also highlights and sheds light on narcissism as an inherent humanistic trait versus pathological narcissism 
victimization and the healing process and therapeutic intervention and relief. Sarah, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Thank you, Michelle. I'm doing well. Good to be here. That's good. I mean, you are, I like that you are a a busy lady and a mom. Um, What got you into writing? You know, as far as I can remember, I've wanted to be a writer. Um, I know it's going to sound silly, but when I was 10, (laughs) I wrote a a play for my class and begged the teacher to let me um, get everyone involved and present it, and I did. And so that's as far back as my recollection goes, um, as far as wanting to be a writer. And then um, I remember purchasing three script writing books when I was 13, and I was bound and determined to be a script writer uh, until I realized the statistics uh, related to that and how many actually get picked for production. And so I decided to switch over to the book world. And I just remember penning lots of stories with my best friend at the time. Um, we actually you know, wrote songs and different things too and poems. And so I've always wanted to be a writer. It's always been a passion of mine. I'm not sure where it came from. Maybe it was inherited. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think that's that funny. I know that um, I remember about the same age, maybe a little younger, my, I'm one of three, and my my sister, the oldest, was, you know, the older sister. So I wrote a story where I na- changed the names slightly to protect the innocent, and my brother and I put on this play which is sort of like tattling on my on my sister. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, uh-huh. so it happens. Now, who encouraged you? I had an aunt who was a school teacher who I would send her my little stories and she would sometimes send them back corrected, but encouraged me to to write. Who in your family encouraged you to continue to write? You know, honestly, my parents have always been very supportive. Um, of any goals of mine or my brother's. And so I would definitely have to say that they, they um, pushed me every step of the way. I do remember a couple of other people too outside of my family. Um, that best friend that I mentioned, we spent pretty much every day together and she loved to write too. And so her and I were always compiling stories um, and talking about our writing dreams and that type of thing. And so she was definitely a big inspiration for me. Um, and then I would say a high school teacher who I ended up nominating for Who's Who, um, you know, for teachers in America. And I remember writing this essay, and she gave me like a C minus on it. And mm. to me, that was that was totally unacceptable, right? So I stayed after class uh, about four times with her, and rewrote it and rewrote it. And she was very patient with me, um, and she would never give me exactly what I needed to write down, but she would guide me um, until I got an A+. And so I thought that that teacher definitely um, taught me how to, to do a lot of my academic writing and really pushed me to, to pursue a career in writing in general. Mm-hmm. Now you call yourself a, a book nerd. I mean, do you enjoy reading as much as writing? I do, um, but I prefer to read books that I, I know the authors, so I did spend about 15 years working full-time in publishing and then a, a year and a half as a supervisor at an, an entertainment company. So I've been in media for almost 20 years, and I know a lot of different writers, and so I'll pick up 
you know, something that where I know the author, and so it has a personal meaning to me, and I have a personal connection to it, and that's what I'll read. Hmm. You mean you're not, I mean, because I'm going to tell you, I describe myself as a book nerd, but I know that hearing an author talk, I mean, I'm one, I can't tell you how many books that I've gotten from listening to NPR, and I, I hear this person who does it. Do you ever do that? Um. Not, you know, honestly, and not as much as I would like to. And I think, too, it just comes down to the time factor um, with the four little ones running around here all the time. It's mm-hmm. kind of difficult for me, too. I do enjoy reading James Patterson. I know that's a well-known name, and I have a lot of mm-hmm. his books. Um, but as far as, I, you know, I, I do mostly writing, honestly, mm-hmm. more writing than reading. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you, now you've mentioned it a couple of times about, you know, about being with your family. You've got a blended family, you know, your own, as you call it, your own Brady Bunch. Um, and I know that kids want your attention. How, how do you make time to continue to write, but also, you know, do they inspire you? Yeah, so my kids definitely inspire me. Um, they, both of my biological children, so I should back up a little bit. I live with my boyfriend and his two kids, and then I have two biological children on my own, and they're all between the ages of five and eight. And both of mine have expressed an interest in writing, and so, I mean, I'm just totally geeked about that. And we'll sit down and, um, you know, I'll, I'll teach them their writing, especially the kindergartner. You know, he's just learning to read, and he'll ask me how to spell words, and we work on it. Um, so as far as them being an inspiration, yes, they're an inspiration in my life and also I love working with them um, with reading and writing. And it's always a juggling act for sure. Um, so as a blended family, we also have kind of a crazy schedule and different schedules with our kids. And so, and they're all in activities. And so it's just a lot of staying organized and um, knowing, you know, where we need to be at all times and moving from point A to point B. And I do a lot of my writing too when I'm just sitting there um, watching my daughter at gymnastics or, you know, sitting and watching my boyfriend's son play tennis, I do a lot of my writing at that time. So just whenever I can squeeze it in. But you're also taking classes. I mean, you've already, you know, you, you went to a Michigan State for your undergraduate degree. You've got an MBA degree in marketing, and you're currently pursuing another degree in clinical mental health counseling. I mean, you're a full-time mom. <laughs> You're writing and you're doing classes. How do you how do you set your priorities as far as organizing it? And do you find that one sort of flows into the other? Right. So the kids are definitely my number one priority. My family is always number one. So I will, you know, work my writing schedule around school events and different things. I love chaperoning field trips. I love volunteering in the classroom. Um, and then, of course, all their activities and play dates and that type of thing. So they always come first. And then, um, and I should say, too, that I was a supervisor at an entertainment company working full-time, 9 to 5, uh, five days a week. And I actually um, I resigned from that position and started writing full-time so that I would have more flexibility. And so I can write at night when they go to bed and um, different things. And I do a lot of my schoolwork at that time as well. But it is, it's a juggling act, and I think my school 
helps with that as well because I'm um, back in school for clinical mental health counseling, and we talk a lot about you know, different cognitive behavioral therapy techniques and mindfulness, and I write a lot about mindfulness. And it's just the ability to stay centered um, and stay connected with <clears throat> excuse me, how you feel and um, you know, be able to self-reflect and know when you need to step away for a minute. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting because this is where, where your books are headed, but you've written other books before. What was, I mean, can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for Another Bridges to Cross, Cookies, and Once Upon a Starry Night, and how did they prepare you for the kind of writing that you're doing now? Sure. So when I was younger, and I actually had published those books between 2006 and 2007, I wanted to be a fiction author. Um, uh, That was definitely my number one goal. And it's still a goal of mine, and honestly, I am working on another fiction title on the side at the moment. But, but, you know, I've kind of realigned my priorities these days to be more focused on uh, what I'm pursuing you know, academically, and also aligned with my writing contracts and that type of thing. Back then, um, it was basically my inspiration was to become a famous fiction writer. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. different people in my life at that time also inspired the three titles that I wrote. Was there someone, uh, a particular writer, who you wanted to be? I had been talking to another uh, author, and she was like, I wanted to be Nikki Giovanni. And in her (laughs) course... She did, much like you, she started with fiction and then she ended up writing something on risk management. I mean, you know, because life took her right. in that direction. But who did you want to be? I mean, if you, you know, look honestly, at your, your role model. Yes. So my role model as far as a writer is Virginia Woolf. Mm. I took a course, an honors course. Um, there's only, in Michigan State, there's 50,000 students. There was only eight people in this class and it just, stuck with me. I loved it. It was entirely on Virginia Woolf and James Joyce, and it was an honors option that I took, um, so it wasn't necessarily part of my degree. And ever since then, I have just been extremely infatuated with her and her writing style mm-hmm. and just how you know her life um, was evident in her writing and how she you know kind of intertwined different things that she was going through in a way that it was actually an appealing you know, fictional story for a reader. And so I had always wanted to be like Virginia. Hmm. Now, yeah. you said that some of your children are interested in writing. Do they, what, what is their style? And who do you, who do they want to write? Like, do, are they into fiction? And are they like wanting to write fantasy? Or are they trying to tell their own stories? Right. So I would say both of them want to write fantasy more than their real life mm-hmm. stories. Um, my little one, especially, he's really into just randomly <laughs> uh, zebras and dinosaurs and has been mm-hmm. for a long time. So all of his writing revolves around zebras and dinosaurs and they coexist in his books. Um, and my daughter is more about, she's doing a lot of reading um, with, you know, different like friendship, gr- friendship groups um, and like social groups that and that type of thing. And so she writes about that. And I actually just ordered her her first computer because she's expressed interest in blogging. So mm. this is going to be a new venture, and I'm not sure exactly what we're going to write, but um, I'm, I'm totally geeked about it. And so we're going to start a blog together. 
Oh, and what's the topic? Is it just going to be just on whatever comes up? Yeah, you know, and I think that that's important too. So that mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of get a good understanding of where your kids are at, um, you know, and what they're thinking about. And so, you know, I think that's the the therapist part of me is I want them to be able to express themselves, and I kind of want to get a better understanding of where they're at, you know, in their lives and what they're thinking about and what we can talk about. And so it's whatever comes to mind. That's great, you know, because um, I gone into public schools and private schools and and been talking with kids and having them writing. And I know often, you know, I've had a teacher say, how did you get them to write that? And I said, well, I just told them to just tell me a story, you know, without those like, well, this has to be in a paragraph. This is at one point just to tell their stories. And, you know, you see the light bulb go on through assembly. A teacher might remember, recognize, oh, you know what? I didn't hear that this kid has a story and we often discount kids we go like oh they're there and they're busy playing but they see the world through a different lens than we do and how important it is that you're able to give her a voice and now even to not only just writing in a book that you're going to do a blog yeah I'm just my favorite part of the day is because we have a couple of little ones, and then my boyfriend also helps to tuck in the kids at night and do the whole bedtime routine. And then I'll devote at least a half an hour to an hour to my oldest, and I just love sitting down with her and talking about whatever's on her mind, uh, whatever happened that day, you know, if anything's troubling her and that type of thing. And I've just, that's, that's my, my, the favorite part of my day. And so I'm really interested to see where this blog goes. Mm-hmm. Now, you said those first three books you did in a very short period of time. I mean, was that while you yeah. were working or after you had stopped working? No, it was actually um, when I was working. So I accepted my first full-time publishing job in Chicago right out of college. I was an acquisitions editor in Chicago, and um, that was in 2005. And so these were published in 2006, 2007. I wrote mm. my first one entirely in Chicago. Um, you know what? I take that back. I actually had written a little bit at Michigan State, and then I picked it back up in Chicago and published it And then um, in 2006. And then I moved back, and I was really trying to pursue that writing thing. Um, I wasn't in publishing immediately again. I had a couple of other jobs until I could get back into it in Michigan. It was a tougher market. But, so I always enjoyed coming home and writing. Hmm. I know yeah. that you said that you're you're writing based on a lot of what your your academic life, but there's still that little that little voice of fiction. Do you have yeah. a couple of stories yet that you can you still hear that you want to go back and explore these characters and tell these these fiction stories? You know, honestly, I I started another fiction title a few months ago. It's literally mm-hmm. saved on my desktop as secret fiction title because I don't tell mm-hmm. anyone really about it. Um, it's mm-hmm. more of my creative release, um, as well as, you know, I just feel as, I don't know, as a writer or just as a person, I feel like a lot of times we need to kind of create these interesting and um, creative stories based on our, our, our actual life events, but do it in a manner, you know, that, that really can tell a, a beautiful story. Um, and so a lot of it is based on kind of my life again, but fictionalized. Um, and then obviously, you know, that's just the bare bones of it. And then I create a story around that. So 
yeah, there's definitely something that I'm working on. I'm about halfway done with this book. How do you do? Does your boyfriend or your kids are they concerned about how you're going to portray them in this fictionalized book? <laughs> um, you know, okay. So I will disclose this. Um, my first uh, fiction novel was based on my relationship with my boyfriend now because we were actually high school sweethearts and he was my first love and we reconnected oh. after our divorces. Yeah, mm -hmm. so a happy ending to a very um, kind of turbulent and difficult time. And so, yeah, he was always my one that got away. And as mm -hmm. soon as I left college, we had broken up and I moved to Chicago and I, I wrote this book based loosely on him. And then I dedicated it to my first love. And so he knew it was, you know, based on him. And so I, I don't think it's anything new for him. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I really mm -hmm. haven't discussed it much with the, the little ones, but I'm sure they would be extremely happy. I do a lot of writing um, just uh, for my blogs and articles and different things I write on the kids already and different situations that they're going through. And so I'll always tell them if something is based on, on them or their mindset. Yeah. So, yeah. so you wrote fiction about your first love. And then you found each other again. How sweet is <laughs> yeah. that? Yeah, yeah it's a that. very happy ending. I just feel mm -hmm. like everything happens for a reason. So, so will there be a sequel? <laughs> <laughs> there might be. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 is, that is really sweet. Well, Sarah, we're going to take our first break here. And if you're just joining me, my guest is Sarah Teller. She is an author from who's been in Chicago and she's back to talk about her latest books. We'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Sarah Teller. Sarah just shared with us about some of her writing of fiction. Now, your latest book is called Narcissistic Abuse, A Survival Guide. And I think that many people now, or maybe, maybe who had not been aware of that term, you're hearing it now. I mean, there have been famous people who uh, they suggest might have a narcissistic personality disorder. Um, uh, people like Madonna, even Alec Baldwin, Elvis Presley, Ike Turner, Kanye West, and you know the President of the United States, Donald Trump. You know, so what exactly? What what separates someone from being a narcissist? from being from someone who's just like really self-involved, that person who has like 
who's always posting on Facebook, this is what I'm doing this hour, this has gazillion selfies. What separates them from someone who has a narcissistic personality disorder? Right. So um, we are all narcissists to a certain degree. Um, Narcissist is a spectrum disorder, and there is definitely a fine line between normal narcissism and having confidence and uh, to where it crosses over to pathological narcissism. And basically what I've differentiated between the two in my book is that pathological narcissism is when it starts to hurt others. So it's not just being self-absorbed, but projecting um, toxic traits onto others, uh, gaslighting and making other people feel bad, um, and just a complete lack of empathy. These are all things that define pathological narcissism, the dangerous kind. Now, you talk about a survival guide because, you know, you wonder, isn't there, is there a natural attraction or unnatural attraction or a dangerous attraction between the narcissist and someone who maybe doesn't have a strong self-image and who in seeing this, this person who's all about themselves allows, not allows, but finds themselves in that position to where they're putting down and maybe somewhere in their mind thinking, well, you know, I'm just not as great as them. Yeah, so it's funny you mentioned that um, because there is definitely a toxic connection that occurs. And typically those that are diagnosed or undiagnosed with dependent personality disorder or, um, you know, just for short, codependent, are these type of indiv- individuals are who are most likely to be attracted to narcissists. And this is because they find it very difficult to make um, important life decisions, really any you know, daily decisions as well, on their own without the help of another. And they're attracted to this very you know, robust, confident, charismatic personality that's able to basically control them and make all the decisions for them. And a very extreme um, a version of this codependency is called echoism. So we have these codependent um, personalities that are just drawn to, to pathological narcissists. And a very extreme version of this is echoism. And echoers are those that have very little self-esteem, um, really no self-image. And this was something that was instilled in them very early on in life. And so they are you know, extremely dependent on the narcissistic personality disorder to define who they are and, you know, what their self-image is. And um, so, yeah, there's definitely that toxic connection. Um, And a lot of people talk about, too, that empaths are those that, you know, really care about others or they're they're other-centric rather than egocentric. Those type of personalities are also very much attracted to narcissists. Well, you know, often, like, in because we see these people, and it's like, Often it's like, you don't want to look. <laughs> it's like, but we keep looking. You know, we don't want to hear what they have to say. They're always, you know, on the media. They're always posting, you know. And I've had friends and they say, I get so sick and tired of them. I said, well, why do you keep looking? You know, just block them. But, right. but it's like, there's, sometimes there's that part that, that this person is so big. You know, their personality is just so huge that it's like that car wreck. You don't want to look, but you, you find your eyes pulled to, to that wreck and, and looking at it, how, right. how do you know when, you know, you're just sort of like, 
I don't know, a fan fan base, you know, looking at someone or just like idle curiosity to where maybe you are that person who are looking for this big personality to define you. Right. So um, I do want to back up a little bit and answer that question a little differently because there mm-hmm. are actually two types of narcissists. Um, and I think it's important to make uh, the differentiation between the two. So there's the covert narcissist. And that's who's, you know, very flashy. They call them somatic mar- narcissists. Um, they're very into their image and, um, and, you know, materialistic, and they have all of the trophy things um, and trophy relationships. And they're always putting themselves out there for the media and, you know, just any way that they can get noticed. And then there's the covert narcissist. And that is somebody who is typically extremely um, intelligent and is also referred to as a cerebral narcissist. And these people do everything behind closed doors or everything underhandedly. So they may come across as your average Joe, just a typical person, um, mm-hmm. you know, nothing wrong. And you could be attracted to this new relationship with them. Um, you know, and it, it doesn't have to be a romantic partnership. It's just any kind of connection with this person. You may be drawn to them, uh, think that they're completely normal, and then, you know, behind your back they're doing all these secret things. And so there is the two types. And um, then there's a term called malignant narcissism, and that is somebody who possesses both. So this is a very attractive person who is very flashy and has all the material things, uh, also very intelligent and and engages in underhanded tactics to reel in and, and control their victim. And so it's not always about the flashiness. Um, malignants are the most dangerous, and over mm. and cerebral narcissists are, are usually deemed more dangerous than their, um, their counterparts, overts, because, <clears throat> because you don't until it's mm-hmm. too late. So I don't think, you know, you may be attracted to somebody that is really putting themselves out there and is very flashy and you like that confident cockiness about them, you know. Um, but that often wears off quickly. And so that's why a lot of nurses, you know, they start to use other tactics to maintain the control once they've gotten it from their victim. Right, that's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, and without getting all political, but there are people who say that the president is a, is a huge narcissist. And you see people who, you know, whatever he does, you know, you know, even if it's like, you know, like, like wait a minute, here's a video that says that he, where he said this, now he's doing it. But you have some people who it's like they drank the Kool-Aid. Do, do right. you see, you know, is, is there, you know, on a bigger scheme, and even though they don't know him personally, it's like they clearly have drank the Kool-Aid and they just don't see, it's just like, well, yeah, but he goes out and he says what he's going to do. And, you know, sometimes you hear and news analysis that some people are attracted to them because he's living the life that they wish they lived or saying the things that they don't feel someone is saying for them. Is this a narcissistic relationship? Right. Um, that's a really good question. I think that, you know, there's as many different perspectives perspectives as there is individuals and people are attracted to that for different reasons um from a political standpoint i think that there's some you know right-winged um followers of donald trump or supporters of donald trump 
and they're just going to support him no matter what because that's their political affiliation. Um, other times I think that, yeah, I mean, there's, there's people that are drawn to him and his flashiness because they find it so ab absurd um, and they just can't look away. And then other times, you know, those people may, may be, like you said, wishing for that life or wishing to emulate him and what he does and his actions. And those are the people that I would be most concerned with um, as being narcissists themselves if, in fact, um, you know, we're saying that Donald Trump has pathological narcissism. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I have done a lot of the reading on that, and I've actually written legal articles on it um, for a certain website that I write for. And he, yes, I, I've, I've read different perspectives of, you know, whether or not he has narcissism. And a lot of people who are writing these stories are saying that he's a malignant narcissist, so the most dangerous kind, right? So he's mm -hmm. in a position of power, and he has all this wealth, and also he's very intelligent. And so it's that, that very dangerous combination. Mm -hmm. now, now, you've gone back, and you're studying clinical mental health counseling. Okay, are narcissists born this way? Do you, can you see it developing? And is there a way that a parent or a loved one or a relative can, or even a teacher, can intervene when they see that it's gone beyond a whole lot of self-confidence? Yes. So there's all kinds of research and studies on narcissistic personality disorder, um, or NPD, and sometimes, um, you know, people have said that we're born with these genetic traits um, or we're predisposed to become narcissists, and then it's the nurturing aspect or the upbringing that brings out that piece of us. Um, so a lot of it, but a lot of it typically has to do with the way someone is raised, um, if they're exposed to traumatic events early on, and then there's, there's studies that have shown that the caregivers, so whether those are parental figures or someone else who has raised the child, um, they either overloved the child, so they, they doted on them too much and they were always in the limelight and they were always, you know, the center of attention, or they neglected the, this uh, child. And so they never felt like they were good enough. They never felt like anything they could do would give them the attention that they sought. And so they started doing things to act out and try to get attention in any way possible, and then that developed into narcissistic personality disorder. Um, so there's all kinds of research and studies, like I said. A lot of it is based on childhood factors, um, and then it just progresses and gets worse in adulthood. Uh, but then there's also late-onset narcissism, and this typically occurs um, when someone is in their late teens to their you know, early to mid-20s, and they just, it's, it's always derived from a lack of self-esteem. They don't feel good about their circumstances. And so they decide that something switches inside and they decide to, to go on this, um, this, you know, path for power, basically, and, mm -hmm. you know, try to get attention. So, so, yeah, so there's all different theories on what causes MPD. Um, and, you know, it could be a combination of all of them, really. Before you wrote your book, had you heard about narcissism? Um, were you aware of it before you got into school? Or, or which came, as they say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? 
Were you aware of it? And that made you decide to study it. Or as you were studying it, you started to recognize the need to talk about narcissistic abuse. Right. So um, I started researching on my own before Mm -hmm. I was um, in my degree program. And I was just very intrigued by it uh, because basically, you know, I had some personal experiences in my life where things were connecting, you know, the dots were connecting as I was doing more and more research. And I realized that this is more prevalent than anyone ever talks about or, you know, most people probably even know about. And so there needs to be some attention around this. And then uh, as I was doing my research, I realized how many people had posted in various like social media groups and on blogs and things that there's something going on with their relationship or there's something, you know, going on with um, the relationship with their parents and they just can't put their finger on it. And it was the same stuff over and over and over again. And I just realized that there was a lot of victims and uh, that it would be probably helpful to, to write a book and to try to help some of these people that are very confused and don't understand the disorder. You know, before we get into your book, I think that that's really important because You know, a lot of people would look and go like, well, of course she knows all about it. She's in school and she's studying to get a degree in clinical mental health counseling. But, I mean, I think that, you know, there's bad things about about the Internet, but there's also good things. There's ways that you can find support. You can find ways to put a finger on, put a name to something that you just can't quite put your finger on. And... Do you recommend that, like if someone is feeling some kind of way, do you recommend that they do their own research? I do. I think that the Internet the way it is nowadays and and the interconnectivity between all of us, there's a lot of credible information out there. Um, I found all of my – I have actually haven't formally studied the um, MPD, Narcissistic Personality Disorder, in school yet, so everything that – I know about it was self-research um, and mm. primarily on the internet. And so I just think, and there's more and more books that are being published on it. And I just think that it's a really good, good tool. If you are feeling lost or there's something going on and you can't put your finger on it, you're just, you're just feeling off to start your research there um, and try to, you know, under, better understand what's going on. I mean, we all need to understand what's going on with us, you know, so that we can, can um, stay in, in a healthy mindset. So I definitely think the Internet is a good tool for that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's funny that you said one thing, and as much as you love your kids, you know, you said that, that sometimes it can come from loving your kids too much, okay? And yeah. when, do, when do you draw the line? Like I know my son will go back. I have an adult son who will tell you that he always thought, that he was a little prince and that he was so loved. And it's good because and I mean, he never doubted, you know, that he was loved right. and that he was special. But what are the signs? You know, because I know like, you know, at a moment I'm going like, oh, God, I hope I didn't love him too much. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> oh, no. but, but, you know, like I said, he's an adult and I know that he turned out all right. But as a parent, okay, if, if another parent came to you and they said, you know, am I loving my kid too much? Or how, how do you determine a, an appropriate level of loving your child? Wow, what a great question. Um, 
you know, there's different scenarios here. So a lot of it has to do with if you're in a family and there's multiple children, um, it's a loving one more than the other and, um, you know, in a very noticeable way. So basically neglecting or excluding, <clears throat> excuse me, one child or a couple of your children versus the other two, always uh -huh. comparing the two, um, you know, doting on the accomplish, accomplishments of one um, and not saying anything when the other child does something that should be, you know, recognized by the parent. So that's a lot of it, and that's a type of abuse, emotional abuse um, that happens in childhood. And that can cause it. Um, you know, I don't think that we can, I don't want to say we can't overly love our children because that is the term, mm -hmm. but we can love our children without making others feel bad. So again, we go back to the, the inherent trait of pathological narcissism, and that's making others feel bad. So in that situation, you're making one child feel bad to dote on the accomplishments of the other. Um, that would be one scenario. Another one would be just, you know, always, really neglecting, um, neglecting, you know, the uh, noting or, oh, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. It's okay. Okay. So the other scenario would be that, you know, um, that child cannot do anything wrong. So if you were to get a note from the school that they are misbehaving, they're acting out, or, you know, a teacher is concerned about their grades or different things that, the average parent would want to get involved with and make sure that the, the child and their student stays on track. Um, if you respond by saying, no, 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 you know, not, not Billy. Billy can't do any wrong, you know, and just totally disregard when people are trying to intervene um, for the benefit of your child, that's another sign of overly loving them um, that could create pathological narcissism. Mm, interesting. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's really – Interesting that you see they always say how you wish it was a handbook when you get a child. But, you know, like there are things that there are now tools and things that you can go to to find out and to listen to other people and take advice from others. So we're going to take our second break. And when we come back, I want to talk about your book, The Narcissistic Abuse, A Survival Guide. We'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Sarah, your book is not written for, you know, the narcissist. It is a survival guide. Yes. How, how, you know, and people always think like abuse. I mean, and it's funny that 
we have moved beyond where it used to be if someone didn't show up with a black eye, people didn't want to recognize that they were being abused. We know that words can hurt, words can be as painful as that hit. How does someone recognize that perhaps they are in a narcissistic, abusive relationship? Okay, so if you are in a partnership with a narcissist, um, no matter what you say, do, think, or feel, it's never going to be good enough to your partner. Um, they will be constantly putting you down. And I'm, I'm not talking about just on, on um, important life issues, but the way that you're, you dress, you, you cook their meals, um, and you're going to be doing the cooking because they, don't, they want their mates to do everything for them. Um, the way you smile, the way you talk, everything is going to be wrong. So that's a clear sign that you're in a relationship with a narcissist. And um, so what, what's important to acknowledge here is that there's three stages to uh, narcissistic abuse, uh, especially an intimate romantic partnership. There is the uh, initial idealized stage where the partner seems to be everything you're looking for, completely amazing, just out of a storybook. Um, and this is how they reel in their victim. And not until they believe that their victims are completely trapped. So they start to strip away different um, things that make this person an individual. They might have them move in with them. They might combine all their finances and different things like that. When that person is trapped, then they start with the emotional abuse. They start with devaluing this person, it's called, um, and they start making them feel bad. And then, you know, obviously, it's human nature to want to say something back to this person, and that's when things can get physical and the emotional abuse can worsen. And if this person tries to walk away, then the narcissist will try to perform a discard. And that's basically they'll reel them back just long enough to completely destroy their life um, and make sure they're left with nothing before moving on to their next partner. So You know, it, it's funny because I can recall I had a friend who perfect, oh, this is a perfect mate and everything. And then after they had gone through all that and done the move in, like you said, things changed and she, and she asked, she said, what happened? Why have you changed? And they looked at her and said, that was just to get you. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That would, and that would be a malignant reaction because, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes nurses won't actually voice what they've done, but if they want their victim to know them, they're malignant. And that would be something a narcissist would say. So that's very mm-hmm. unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the problem, too, I mean, it only gets worse if the victim makes plans to leave this person. And they've already been stripped of so much of their independence. Um, and it, they have very limited options to begin with. And if they try to put a safety plan in place or try to leave, then things get really, really ugly really quick. Mm. So... In the survival guide, you're not talking about how to survive while you're in this relationship. It's almost, it sounds like to me that you're talking about you've got this, you recognize it, how to get out of it, and then how to rebuild and reclaim. Because if you've been stripped away of everything, I mean, it's sort of like how long can you be hear this and not have to where you start to begin to believe some of this. Right, right. And that, that is a huge problem and a, a very common tactic of a narcissist. Um, it's called gaslighting. And what they'll do is 
So basically make you believe that you can't trust your own instincts or your own opinions on anything. And so you begin to believe that everything they're saying is factual and, and right, and you, you really can't trust yourself. And so that's part of maintaining that control. Um, but yeah, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to, to um, identify that person or you know, grab hold of that person that's in that situation and they know something's wrong and they may just be getting into devalue. Um, so like your friend, you know, the partner looked at her and said, no, that was just to get you. I mean, hopefully that's a red flag and they start, you know, asking around or asking their friends or doing their own research and, and then they understand, um, you know, what is happening to them as it progresses and gets worse and then they get out and yes, um, a big part of it is rebuilding and not only rebuilding, phys you know, physically and tangibly, but your emotional and psychology psychological well-being after being in that relationship. Um, so that's kind of who, you know, I was trying to, to write this for. You know, it also sounds like, is this something that, that maybe the survivor also needs to share with sometimes, like you see family members, friends who just see the knight in shining armor, and when you go to tell them, they're being like, oh, you're just being so sensitive, or it's like, oh, you are so lucky to have that person. So is, is it important that friends and family also understand and also that understand why when the survivor gets out that they really even more so need their support to rebuild themselves? Yes, absolutely. So uh, a big tactic of a pathological narcissist is to ensure that you're isolated um, and under complete control and in total dependence. And part of that is actually getting to your friends and family and your social network ahead of time. So the narcissist is, is always a step ahead. And as soon as you have been stripped of this independence and you're going to move into devalue, they'll reach out and they'll present as the perfect partner to everybody that matters to you. And, and then, you know, inadvertently, these people who you've known your whole life and who care about you, um, they start to to be involved with this gaslighting. So if you start to complain mm. to them, they call you crazy, you know, and mm. you tell you you have nothing mm -hmm. to complain about. about, And then it's just part of the game, the sadistic game. Um, and then, yeah, so really the victim is left totally alone and isolated, and, and it's very difficult to summon the courage to leave this situation at the end. Um, and... They, they need the social support. And I will say that a lot of it, after you leave and escape and <clears throat> you're in this new draft of your life, uh, it will take some effort for these people to come around, uh, for a lot of the people that you had trusted and are known for years to come around and really understand what happened. Because right. they were totally fooled too, you know, and fooled to even a, a larger degree because they didn't see what happened behind closed doors. You know, our therapist aware of this? I mean, if, you, if you're going to, um, you know, people who are going back to a, a couples therapist or a marriage counselor, are therapists aware of this? They're, and, and are there, they're, how do you know that you've got the right person who is getting what's happening to you and not someone who's going to tell you to, well, go home and try harder? Right. So therapists are aware of this. Um, and there's actually therapists that, that specialize in 
the cluster B personalities, um, and one of those is narcissistic personality disorder. And so therapists have gone to school, and they have the schooling and the knowledge um, to understand what's happening. But the, the big issue here is that narcissists never seek help. And mm. it's very difficult for you to convince them to show up with you to a couples therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first sign that they've been founded out by the therapist, they're not coming back. So, um, so I think the big issue there is even though the therapists are aware of the personality and probably see what's going on, um, and you know they have that intuitive knowledge, it's it's basically narcissist, the narcissist, you know, happy enough or strong long enough to stay in the session and try to work through problems because narcissists are also very intuitive and they don't want to be found out. And you've written a book; it's out there. Are you? Who is your audience, and have you had opportunities to speak with? women who are recovering from these relationships? Yes. So um, I do want to say, too, that I do use the feminine pronoun in my book, but I have written in the beginning that it does apply to men and women. And these victims reach out to me on social media all the time. Um, I get messages all the time that I'm responding to and trying to help them work through issues. I'm not a licensed therapist, and I do tell them that up front, but I do try to just help them, you know, as someone who understands what they're going through and their circumstances. And um, I do have, you know, my social media front, my YouTube channel, and my support pages. And the support pages are also designed for people to, to post in there and get a response from other members as well. So these people don't feel alone. They feel listened to, um, and they feel like, somebody doesn't think they're crazy, you know, that's very, very important because that is the tactic of the narcissist to make them believe that. And so they need to understand that they do have support. Now, your book was published by Mad Hatter Publishing. Was it difficult to get this book published? Um, you know, honestly, it, it wasn't difficult. I reached out to Gia. I saw that um, Gia Slanto with Mad Hatter Publishing was accepting new submissions. And so I sent her my proposal, and it just, I just it felt like it clicked with her right away as well. You know, she called me and she said, she said, "Wow, she's like this is powerful." You know, I I know people in my life that would really love to read this or need to read this, and so mm-hmm. we had a a rather lengthy conversation, and it was great and wonderful, and uh, we started putting plans together. So um, I just feel like the content and the subject matter is something that a lot of people can connect with and need to hear. And it's available on Amazon. That's right, yep. Or in any okay. And are you are you doing talks? I mean, just in that locally in Michigan and is there are you finding that people across the country, I mean, cuz like you said, this happens everywhere and that I could see where people would want to hear you talk about this the way that you've explained it explained um, the different types of narcissists, what it looks like, and particularly that voice of the survivor. I mean, I'm surprised that women's organizations, and particularly now, in a time when we're talking about the Me Too movement, we're talking about um, survivors of sexual abuse and harassment, that they'd be flocking to you. 
Right. Thank you. Um, I honestly haven't done as much with that as I want to. And uh, my idea was to start an in-person support group locally in the community. Um, so that's going to be my next step. A lot of what I do is you know, post my YouTube videos on um, different matters pertaining to narcissism and different things that I feel like people would connect with and need to hear. Uh, but I haven't done any local talks. And um, I have been in touch with Gia, and we are considering doing a second edition of the book. So I'm hoping that we'll do a new rollout. Um, and then you know, there will be more, more speaking engagements and different things attached to that. Well, you know, from this lens, as you've watched what's happened with the Me Too movement and recently with the Supreme Court hearings and you hear these women, I mean, I can also see that how we devalue these survivors almost like as, as that entity, you know, these senators who were like so bigger than life devalued these women who were survivors. Did you see what you thought about that? Did you see a sort of a narcissistic abuse happening there? Absolutely. And um, I do write for LegalReader.com, and I, I do pick up a lot of those topics just for the mere fact that I, I, I see narcissism written all over, you know, those situations. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it does need to be published and people need to hear it from that perspective. And so I'll pick it up and I'll, I'll write from that perspective and share, you know, on social media and different things. And, you know, you kind of tag it as, you know, ligna narcissism because people need to be aware that that's, you know, I think people know that it's not right, but that we're talking about potentially some pathological personality traits there. Um, you know, that it, it goes deeper than just this one incident, this person is a predator. And, um, and so I'm trying to draw awareness to, to that. And what do you say, you know, what would you say to, to young women, even young men, who find themselves in these situations and they find themselves in these situations to, you know, because part of what will put you in that, that, that situation is devaluing yourself to not having that self-confidence. And now you're seeing that it has been sort of said that, if you are abused, if you are a survivor and you come out, you might not be believed, okay? And this is one of the main things that you're talking about in the survivor, that you're going to go and say that Prince, Princess Charming is, and people aren't right. listening. How, what, what do you say to people who are living with that or particularly to our young people so that they know that it's wrong? Not to put themselves down and think that, that it's okay for this bigger person to do this. What do you say to them? You know, um, especially with young people, I mean, they're so impressionable. And a lot of the abuse, a lot of abuse in general, physical, mental, emotional, sexual, happens with younger people. And, um, you know, predators prey on them for that reason. There is hope. There is um, a group of individuals out there that understand your circumstances. They're, they've either been through the same thing, they're going through the same thing, they know someone who's gone through the same thing. There is support out there um, if you seek it, and there's a lot of different avenues and different ways to do that. Um, and, you know, that, that would be 
my hope is somebody would try to seek support and leave the situation if they're in it. Everyone's situation is different and everyone's you know, situation is complicated to a certain extent. Um, but, to, but you need to leave that situation as soon as possible because it's very detrimental and you need to go entirely no contact with your abuser if possible. Uh, this doesn't always happen in shared custody situations or different things, but limit the contact with that person as much as possible because they will try to keep initiating contact with you. Um, and then something that's very real is that if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to tell somebody and you need to, be, you need to document it as much as you can um, so that you, know, you get the protection that you need. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you. I mean, this is some really important information that I think that people need to. How do people get in touch with you? What is your website? What's the best way to reach you? Right. So my website is sarahteller.com, and my email address is just sarah at sarahteller.com, and I would be happily, you know, happy to answer any emails through that website. And to see some of your YouTube videos, how do they find those? Right, so it's just, my channel is just Sarah Teller, and it should pop right up on the list. And um, go ahead and subscribe, and you'll never miss an update. Well, again, Sarah, I want to thank you uh, for being with us. Your, her book, Sarah's book, is Narcissistic Abuse, A Survival Guide. If you're in that relationship, and they say that they did it just to get you, go get this book and run for the hills. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> You know, I want to thank you and um, keep writing. I look forward to reading some of the stuff by, on, on fiction when you get back to that. Great. Thank you so much, Michelle. It was a pleasure being on your show and really great speaking with you today. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Say that. I do hope that we can stay in touch. And uh, it is so true. When Gia told me about your book, I was like, I know people. I've seen it. I've had people try to do that to me, and, you know, and yes. I think it's, it's an important thing for us to be talking about now. Oh, well, thank you so much, and, yeah, I'm so glad that I connected with you, I did. But, um, mm -hmm. but, yeah, I just feel like it's information that a lot of people need to know. And I didn't get a chance to talk about it today, but I am um, working on a, a follow-up book, and it's on PTSD. So I'm doing, oh. you know, branching out and just doing it on PTSD. Um, mm -hmm. All right. Well, look, you have a great weekend, okay? Thanks. You too. Talk to you later. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to thank today's guest, author Sarah E. Teller. Her latest book, Narcissistic Abuse, A Survival Guide, was published by Mad Hatter Publishing. Narcissistic abuse is real and potentially life-threatening. Physical, mental, and emotional abuse are all part of of the narcissist bag of abusive tricks and can have a lifelong impact on you and everyone in your household. If you or someone you know is caught in this situation, this survival guide can help you break free and survive. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality,
and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.